Before we begin, thank you for joining me for the first episode of Season 3 of Method and Madness. There's a lot more to come, including a 37-year-old cold case that will take you, the listener, on a road trip with me to seek answers. Today's case came in as a suggestion, and I was hesitant to cover it at first. A warning that it's brutal in its violence, but ultimately it's a story that needs to be heard. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features graphic and disturbing details of sexual assault and gang rape. Listener discretion is advised. We have the best culture. In our culture, there is no place for a woman. This is Method and Madness, Episode 54, Fearless, Jyoti Singh. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Patrolman Raj Kumar heard the cries for help on the side of the road in New Delhi, India. It was dark out, about 10.20 p.m., near the Mahipalpur flyover, an overpass on National Highway 8 in India. The area was poorly lit, but lying amongst the overgrown bushes, he saw a man and woman, both naked, both injured. There was a lot of blood. The officer rushed across the highway to a hotel and got a bedsheet and some water. He tore the sheet using one half to cover the woman and the other half to cover the man. The pair were both conscious when they were brought to a local hospital and the details of what they had endured that night were taken by medical personnel and law enforcement. This was no accident, no run-of-the-mill robbery or argument gone wrong. The pair had been left for dead after a heinous attack. Many would say what they had encountered that night was pure evil. Let's dive in. Life of Pi, a film adapted from the novel by Jan Martin, is a spiritual and philosophical journey. A teen named Pi must face all that is thrown at him while in a rescue boat with a Bengal tiger for 227 days following a shipwreck. Pai has no choice but to fight for survival while also conditioning the animal. It's a beautiful story of truth, belief, and fearlessness. It's also the movie that Jyoti Singh watched before boarding a bus that changed everything. She didn't hang Bollywood posters on her walls like most teens her age. Her parents say she would put up diagrams from textbooks. Jyoti Singh was born in Uttar Pradesh, India, to Badrinath Singh and Asha Devi. Her name, Jyoti, means light, and she would always say a girl can do anything. Her father was an airport laborer who had worked hard most of his life to escape poverty. The small rural village where he built a modest home, developed into a small city, a metropolis even, in the 90s and early 2000s. Badri's and Asha's first child was a boy, 
who died at only three days old. Next came their only daughter, Jyoti, in 1989, followed by two sons. Jyoti had a hunger for knowledge and stood out as a student. She wanted to be a doctor, a neurosurgeon, since the time she was little, and her parents were nothing but supportive. Their concern, however, was the cost, as they couldn't afford to put her through that intensive schooling. She told her father, whatever money you have saved up for my wedding, use that for my education. They did one better. The family sold their ancestral land to pay for Jyoti's education. Her dream was to build a hospital in her ancestral village where there were no medical facilities. Jyoti went to college in Dehradun and chose to study physiotherapy while also working part-time at an international call center to pay for staying in a hostel. Between her job and her studies, she usually only had a chance to sleep for three to four hours a night, but her determination was unwavering. By December of 2012, Jyoti, now 23 years old, had finished her finals and come home to be with her family. She could take a breather now. She was about to begin a six-month internship And then, as she told her mother and father, all their troubles would be over. She was a doctor. On the evening of Sunday, December 16th, she planned to go to an upscale mall with her friend, a software engineer named Awindra Pandey, 28 years old. The two had met through a mutual friend. They were going to see a movie in Socket, South Delhi, and Jyoti would be home in two or three hours. But she didn't come home that night and her parents began to worry when she wasn't answering their calls. It was 11.30 p.m. when Jyoti was brought to the Safdarjung Hospital in Delhi. She was conscious and terrified and bleeding, a lot. One of the surgeons working on her said they'd never in their career seen anything like the injuries that Jyoti had sustained that night, that her entire system, all the organs that worked together, weren't functioning correctly and that they didn't think Jyoti would survive longer than two or three days. Her parents received the call. All they knew was that Jyoti had been in an accident, but the shocking, heartbreaking truth was revealed when they arrived at the hospital and spoke to doctors and the police. They were able to see their daughter and reassure her that everything would be okay. Both Jyoti and Awindra described what occurred that night as they traveled home after seeing Life of Pi. A warning that the following segment details what happened to them on a private bus. The violence is extremely disturbing, so if this is too much for you, please skip ahead a few minutes. The movie ended around 8, 8.30 p.m. that night, and Awindra was going to accompany Jyoti home. There were no official public buses available to go back to Dwarka, a city in the southwest district of Delhi, and no auto drivers wanted to take them that far of a distance. They managed to get one rickshaw driver to take them two miles to the Minerka bus stand. Jyoti and Awindra were looking for a bus that was headed to their destination, but they were skeptical when a young man from the steps of a private bus called out, asking Jyoti where she was headed. The pair knew 
that private buses or charter buses were not necessarily safe, but the bus conductor assured them that it would be fine, insisting that they board. And so, Awindra and Jyoti boarded the bus at around 9.30 p.m., paying 20 rupees for the ride. Awindra noticed right before the bus was pulling away that it appeared other potential passengers were denied entry to the bus. And so, it was the two of them and six others, all men, one was driving and three others were in the driver's cabin. Two other men, seemingly passengers, were sitting behind the cabin. For the first few minutes, the trip was uneventful. Jyoti and Awindra chatted as they sat in two seats on the left side of the bus until three of the men came from the cabin and approached them, asking Jyoti what she was doing out so late at night and asking Awindra what he was doing roaming around with a girl on her own. Awindra responded, none of your business. Someone on the bus turned off the interior lights and Awindra was punched by one of the men. He retaliated by hitting him back. Both Awindra and Jyoti were yelling and Jyoti attempted to open one of the two bus doors but was unsuccessful. Next, she frantically tried calling the police on her cell phone but one of the attackers grabbed it away from her. And then someone yelled, get the rod. Two of the other men were now approaching Awindra and Jayoti. One of them had produced an iron rod from the back of the bus. The men robbed the pair of their belongings, including their clothes. And then Awindra was struck several times in the head with the rod as he lay on the floor between two seats. Jyoti tried to help her friend, but was dragged down the aisle to the back of the bus. Awindra attempted to defend her, but he was held back while the men each took turns assaulting Jyoti as she furiously tried to fight back. They beat her, raped her, and sodomized her with the metal rod. One of the men then took over the wheel so that the bus driver could take his turn. After Jyoti had been brutally assaulted, one of the men reached inside of her and began pulling out her intestines before yelling out, she's dead. One of the attackers told the others not to leave the pair alive. Both Jyoti and Awindra were then dragged down the bus aisle by their hair and pushed out of the front door of the bus, naked and seriously injured. Lying in the road, Awindra looked up to see that the bus was now in reverse, headed toward them to run them over. He got up and pulled Jyoti to safety on the side of the road as the bus took off. Now, both Jyoti and Awindra were lying in a strip of wasteland alongside National Highway Number 8. They called out for help. As several drivers went by, they looked but kept going. Finally, someone stopped and called for help. It was another 20 minutes before a police van pulled up. But it wasn't a full-on rescue just yet, according to Awindra. He said that after the police van pulled up, he and Jyoti were questioned about what happened by both the police and the onlookers that had stopped to gawk. There was a lot of blood, and it seemed that there was more of a curiosity of sorts regarding what happened rather than urgent action to get the paramedical attention. There was even some arguing among police officers concerning jurisdiction. Finally, Awindra and Jyoti were loaded into a police van and taken to Safdarjung Hospital in Delhi. Once at the hospital, Awindra said he waited, naked, in a pool of blood 
for another two hours before he was provided with treatment. His family, who'd been notified that he was at a hospital, spent most of the night trying to track down his whereabouts. Meanwhile, Jyoti was conscious and talking and relieved to see her parents when they arrived at the hospital as she burst into tears. She assured her parents she was okay, but that she'd been badly beaten. She was in an an unbelievable amount of pain, and the extent of her injuries was like nothing the staff had ever seen. The list of injuries that Jyoti was suffering due to these heinous acts is incredibly disturbing, and it seems unnecessary to detail all of them. However, it's important to understand the extent of what she endured, so I'll provide a very basic overview of the injuries. According to a doctor that treated her, Jyoti had massive damage to her genitals, uterus, and intestines caused by the metal rod. She had been slapped in the face, kicked in the abdomen, and bitten repeatedly all over her body, her face, lips, arms, legs, breasts, and genitals. Doctors explained to Jyoti's father that they needed to perform a laparotomy, colostomy, and ileostomy because of the ruptured intestine. Risks included developing severe anemia. Doctors were fairly certain that no repair could be made to the small or large bowel and that portions of the digestive system were absent. The damage was primarily caused by inserting and pulling out a metal rod repeatedly with a large magnitude of force. Almost immediately, the public was made aware, and they were furious. Words like atrocious, horrific, barbaric, and shocking were used by everyone, from medical personnel to the citizens of India who didn't know Jyoti's name. At the time, the country had laws forbidding a rape victim's name from being released, but her family has since proudly declared her name. For the time being, though, she was known by the nickname Nirbaya, meaning fearless, and people who hadn't ever met her were ready to fight for her, even creating a solidarity corner outside of the hospital gates. The outrage was heard all across India. The day after the attack, protesters took to the street, thousands of them, women and men, to fight for the treatment of women and for justice for Nirbaya. In the streets, the protesters shouted, We want justice. They held up signs that said, Hang the rapists and girls are not objects, as police officers tried to tame the crowds by using water cannons and beating them with sticks. But the protesters weren't deterred. They kept on fighting for Jyoti and for all women. She was young, healthy, and had a strong will to live, giving her family and the doctors hope that she could survive this. Jyoti underwent surgeries and was kept on a ventilator. Many of her organs were failing, including her lungs. She told her parents she wanted to live. Meanwhile, the police were working to find the suspects. Using the statements by Jyoti and Awindra, police had a lot of information to go on. They knew they were looking for a white bus with the word Yadav on the side of it. Inside, there was a separate cabin for the driver, red seats, and yellow curtains. The bus had traveled through Mahipapur that night, and so cameras were checked at all of the businesses on that route, until finally, a camera at a hotel had exactly what was needed. Investigators were drawn 
to one particular detail on the footage they reviewed. One bus had passed by the area twice in a very short time frame, something unusual for a bus to do on that particular highway. It was identified as a private school bus, and from there, the police narrowed down the search to about 60 possible buses. Within 24 hours of the attack, the exact bus was located near Ravidas Colony, a semi-slum in New Delhi with a couple hundred one-room homes. It matched the physical description of the bus that was seen on camera twice on the night in question, once at 9.34 p.m. and once at 9.54 p.m. It also had a missing front wheel cover and the word Yadav printed on the side, details that had been provided by Awindra. When the police got to the bus, they found a man named Ram Singh inside. Hey everyone, I'm Brittany, the host of Wicked Deeds, a true crime podcast where I, alongside my co-host John, that's me, delve into all things true crime related, with an emphasis on unsolved cases throughout the Northeast United States. I chronicle the stories while John analyzes each case using his investigative background. Through our conversations, we aim to bring more attention to these cases and, with any luck, help produce new leads to be worked. You can find Wicked Deeds on all major platforms, with new episodes releasing on Tuesdays. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our socials to stay up to date on all things Wicked. The police had found the bus, which had water pooled inside from being washed recently, and a 30-year-old man, Ram Singh, inside. When he saw that he was being approached, he ran, but was quickly captured, his clothing stained in blood. Once in custody, he confessed and showed the officers not one, but two iron rods located in a bus compartment. One rod was about two feet, or 59 centimeters long, with a circumference of about 2.5 inches, or 6 centimeters. It was flat at one end, with a curved-like hook on the other end. The rod had multiple serrations. The second rod was about 28 inches, or 70 centimeters long, both of them covered in dry blood. He informed the officers of where he had thrown a Windrus SIM card after stealing his cell phone. Ram Singh, a private bus driver who made a living transporting students to and from school, was the first man arrested. His brother, 26-year-old Mukesh Singh, struggled to hold down a job but occasionally drove a taxi. After the attack, he had fled, looking to hide out in Karali, a remote village where he was found, interrogated, and arrested. He eventually told police what route that bus had taken during the attack Recovered from him were his blood-stained clothes as well as a Windrus Samsung Galaxy phone. The two brothers were known about the neighborhood for their petty crimes, violent nature, and alcohol consumption. A juvenile, who was not named at the time because of his age, Muhammad Afraz, was found at a bus stop and arrested. He was in possession of Jyoti's ATM card. When police went to his mother's home, she told them that she didn't even know he was still alive. She hadn't seen him in three years. A fourth man, 28-year-old Akshay Thakur, who was married with an infant, 
had been staying with bus driver Ram Singh, but had fled to Bihar. He was arrested on the 21st. Rounding out the arrests were the final two men, 20-year-old Vinay Sharma, who was in possession of his bloodstained clothes and the hush puppy leather shoes that had been stolen from a Windra, as well as Jyoti's Nokia phone. And finally, 19-year-old Pawan Gupta, who also had bloodstained clothes and a Windra's watch. They also lived in Rabita's colony in New Delhi. All of the accused men had their cell phones seized so that records could be examined. They were also positively identified by Awindra. On top of the positive identification by the victim, there were multiple tests conducted to build a case. Physical evidence collected from the bus included the fingerprints of Awindra and Jyoti. Several prints of the accused were also collected. With the suspects in custody, a timeline was beginning to emerge. On the evening of December 16th, bus driver Ram, who was a notoriously heavy drinker, and his brother Mukesh had been partying at home with the juvenile, Muhammad, and a fourth man, Akshay. Ram received a request from the owner of the bus to go out and purchase gas. It was around 8 p.m. when Ram said to the others, let's go have some fun. Typically, that meant drinking and robbing people. As they were headed to the bus, they called out to two other men in the neighborhood, Pawan Gupta, who worked at a fruit stand and loved to fight, and Vinay Sharma, a part-time instructor at a gym who also loved to fight and would reportedly take steroids. The six men boarded the bus. Ram's brother Mukesh was behind the wheel and drove the men through the congested city streets, pulling up to bus stops to try and attract potential passengers. The bus was not licensed as public transportation, but it didn't matter much. If caught, offenders would usually pay a bribe to avoid paying a fine. The juvenile, Muhammad, would call out to the waiting travelers, asking if anyone needed a ride to Nehru Place. A man took them up on it and boarded the bus. As it drove off, the man was robbed and beaten and thrown from the moving bus. Next, the six men pulled up to another bus stop at a suburb named Munurka. To increase the chance of pulling off their ruse, three of the men sat in separate seats to give off the impression that they were passengers. Muhammad stepped out of the bus and called out for Palam Crossing and Dwarka Sector 1. Mukesh was driving and Ram and Akshay were in the driver's cabin with him. Once Awindra and Jyoti had been seated for about a minute, the interior lights were turned off by Ram. He, Muhammad, and Akshay began their assault on Awindra and then asked Vinay and Pawan to bring over the iron rods, which they then used to unleash blows, onto Awindra's head, legs, and body. Jyoti began to scream for help as the bus kept on moving. While Vinay and Pawan had Awindra pinned down, Ram, Akshay, and Muhammad hit Jyoti and dragged her to the back of the bus where they took turns raping her. Muhammad assaulted her first, followed by Ram and then Akshay. When they were done, they switched places with the men who were holding down Awindra, and so Vinay and Pawan went to the rear of the bus and assaulted and raped Jyoti. According to Awindra, he noticed at one point that the bus had slowed down 
And it was then that he realized the driver, Mukesh, had handed off his duties to one of his friends before he too went to the rear of the bus and attacked and raped Giotti. All six men had taken part until each one had their turn assaulting her. Awinger then heard someone announce, she's dead. After Giotti and Awinger were thrown from the moving bus, the six men returned home to Ravida's colony with all of the stolen items they'd gotten that night. They used water from a standpipe to clean up and burned Giotti's and Awinger's clothing, deciding to keep one pair of shoes. Once back at the home of Ram and Mukesh, Muhammad divvied up the night's score, cash, phones, credit cards, a watch. While Awindra was recovering from his injuries, Jyoti was in critical condition. She had provided her statement to police and to her doctor about what had occurred, but her body was in a state in which she would most likely have to be fed via IV for the rest of her life, as the damage to her internal organs were so great and she was missing most of her intestine. She was transferred from the hospital in India to a hospital in Singapore, Mount Elizabeth, which was known for its trauma center and organ transplants. Some believed she was transferred there for political reasons, as the last thing India wanted was to have Nirbhaya die in their country. Two days later, Jyoti lost her fight, and she died on December 29th due to sepsis, multiple organ failure, and multiple other injuries. Her body was brought back to India, and she was cremated. The Netflix series, Delhi Crime, details the investigation from the point of view of the police officers. To eliminate any doubt that they had the right men, investigators used dental forensics, matching the bite marks on Giotti's body to the suspect's dental impressions. All six men were charged that March, and over 80 witnesses were interviewed and testified at the trial, including doctors that treated Giotti and the police officers that investigated. Five of the men denied their involvement altogether, but Mukesh Singh, the man who was driving the bus, admitted to being there. According to him, and in contrast with the statements made by the victims, he said he never left the driver's cabin during the attack. The DNA evidence says otherwise. Samples were taken from all of the accused. Blood, saliva, fingernail clippings, bloodstains from clothing, matching saliva to bite marks found on Jyoti's body, and positive matches were found to prove that Mukesh, as stated by Awindra, did take part in the assault. There's a BBC documentary on this case called India's Daughter, which was banned in India. In it, there are interviews with Giotti's family, her parents, who are just so lovely and were clearly so supportive of their daughter's ambitions and endeavors, who were questioned when she was born by family members why they were celebrating Giotti's birth like she was a boy. They didn't see it that way. They were elated to have Giotti, and it never mattered to them if she were a boy or a girl. Also in that documentary, and this was really difficult to watch, so trigger warning if you decide to check it out, there's an interview with one of the attackers, Mukesh. In it, he's in jail and refers to the assault on Awindra and the rape and murder of Giotti as the incident and the accident. 
He says how the intention was not to rape or assault anyone, that his brother just wanted to teach the pair, to inquire on who this man was and why he was out with this young woman. The morality police, I suppose. I doubt much of what he said is taken seriously by anyone with critical thinking skills, and so much of it is posturing, his story full of holes and obvious lies, attempting to deny his involvement conveniently. He's read a list of the injuries inflicted on Giotti, and he sits there, expressionless. He goes on to make several comments about the brutal rape, like that Giotti shouldn't have fought back, she should have allowed the rape, and she would have been let go afterward. He also said, quote, You can't clap with one hand. It takes two hands to clap. A decent girl won't roam around at nine o'clock at night. A girl is far more responsible for rape than a boy. His belief was that boys and girls are not equal. Housework and housekeeping is for girls, not roaming in discos and bars at night, doing wrong things, wearing wrong clothes. According to him, only about 20% of girls are good. To add to that was his defense attorney, M.L. Sharma, who moments later was interviewed. You heard his quote at the top of the episode saying how there's no place for women. In this documentary, it just keeps getting worse. Quote, the moment she came out of her house with a boy, who was neither her husband nor her brother, she left her morality and reputation as a doctor, as well as a girl's morality also in the house. And she came out just like a woman. A female is just like a flower. It gives a very good-looking, very soft performance. Pleasant. A man is just like a thorn. Strong. Tough enough. That flower always needs protection. If you put that flower in a gutter, it is spoiled. If you put that flower in a temple, it will be worshipped. In our society, we never allow our girls to come out from the house after 6.30 or 7.30 or 8.30 in the evening with any unknown person. If you put your diamond on the street, surely a dog will take it out. His sentiments are matched by another defense attorney who chimes in with, quote, if very important, if very necessary, she should go outside, but she should go with family members. This is not a sentiment that represents every man in India, but for many, a respectable woman should not go to a movie with a male at night and shall be punished for breaking these rules. To be treated worse than an animal. To be treated in a way that animals don't even treat their prey. Of course, none of it is about teaching someone a lesson in morality. It's about control and misogyny. While researching this case, the question kept coming up, how are people raised this way? Watching that same BBC documentary, the viewer is given a glimpse into the answer to that question during an interview with the father of Ram and Mukesh. Their father said, quote, It was Akshay and the juvenile's fault. They brought alcohol onto the bus. Their mother said that she and the men's father were not present in the home that day and that they had no idea what did or didn't happen. The jail psychiatrist that was examining the men while they waited trial described that the mentality is, hey, it's all right, we are in enjoyment mode. 
On March 11, 2013, news outlets reported that Ram Singh had died by suicide from inside his jail cell. According to a spokesperson at the jail, Ram had made a rope out of a blanket and hung himself. But his family argued that he'd been killed by police. His father said he had an injured hand and had been raped by other inmates and just wouldn't have killed himself. Of the five surviving attackers, the juvenile, Muhammad, who was 17 at the time of the attack, was given the maximum sentence of three years, much to the dismay of Jyoti's parents, who felt that he should have been given a much harsher punishment. He was reportedly the most brutal of the men, and the one who had lured the pair onto the bus. The other four men went to trial, where the prosecution laid out all of the evidence related to the charges. Charges of dacoity, which is armed robbery by a gang of people in India, abduction, gang rape, and murder. And that laid out evidence was thorough and damning. There was the man that had been picked up and robbed on the bus earlier on the night in question. There were the eyewitness statements by Awindra as well as the statements that Shoti had made when interviewed. The fact that the men had prevented other passengers from boarding the bus showed premeditation. The footage showing the bus in the area at the time that the assaults took place. All of the stolen belongings that were found on each of the accused matches between the bite mark on Jyoti's body that lined up with dental impressions taken by the accused. Blood recovered from the two iron rods that Ram Singh produced from the bus on that day he was arrested was a match with Jyoti's DNA profile. DNA samples that had been collected from the victims, from the accused, their clothes, the iron rods, the bus, and even the dumping spot. The bodily harm done to Jyoti was detailed and said to be done with the intention of causing death. The prosecution also needed to prove Mukesh's involvement as he claimed he was present, but that he never left the driver's seat. It was said that even if he had remained driving the entire time that he was to be held just as accountable as the others, he had knowledge of what was happening on the bus and continued driving in order to allow the crimes to continue taking place. At the end of the day, though, even as the prosecution was dotting all of their I's and crossing all of their T's, the DNA evidence proved that Mukesh had bloodstains on his clothes. The defense tried to argue that Awinder's testimony was faulty because he didn't describe the iron rods to the doctor that was treating him. They also said that Jyoti's statements should be inadmissible since she was now deceased and her injuries were not the cause of her death, but it was medical negligence that caused her death. The following was found to be proven, that the four accused abducted the victims by deceit, robbing, causing injuries, and that some of the accused had pinned down a windra while others took turns committing rape. That the accused threw the victims out of the moving bus, shared the items they had stolen from the victims, destroyed evidence thoroughly showing a legal agreement between them to commit such legal acts, and they had knowledge of the same. They were convicted of criminal conspiracy, abduction with the intention to force the victim into illicit intercourse, gang rape, committing unnatural offenses, murder, dacoity, and attempted murder for the attack on Awindra. All four men were found guilty and sentenced to death.
In 2015, Muhammad, the juvenile at the time of the attack, was released. It's been said that his actions were the most heinous in what ultimately led to Jyoti's death. He's reportedly changed his name. The four remaining men filed appeals to have reduced sentences from death to life in prison. They lost all of their appeals, and so early on the morning of Friday, March 20th, 2020, all four men were hanged. Outside of the jail, people celebrated and Giotti's parents said they felt faith that justice had been restored. How do you make sense of a case like this? How do you go about understanding the why behind this level of violence? This level of disregard of other human beings, the complete hatred for women, and the inability to see how someone has any accountability for their acts. It's true that poverty, lack of education, and a patriarchal society contribute heavily to this kind of violence, but the severe and disturbing degree of the violence inflicted that night cannot be excused with just a wave of, well, that's poverty for you. There's something else at play. When Giotti's friend Awindra was later asked about the assault, he said that oppressors think they can get away with being violent, and the more they get away with it, and there are no punishments, the more they do it. When asked what failures contributed to the brutal attack, he responded with this. Public transportation in many parts of India is not safe and makes people vulnerable. The police response to the attack as he and Jyoti lie on the side of the road was delayed and inadequate. Awinja believed that more female officers should be staffed to assist female victims of violent crime. The onlookers, the lack of help received by the people that were morbidly curious about the injured pair but didn't offer help. The hospital, where Awinja was still waiting naked two hours after his arrival. And finally, society, which compels victims to hide and where women are scared to report rape for fear of shame and out of fear of the repercussions, often meaning more violence. Canadian Indian director Deepa Mehta made the documentary Anatomy of Violence, which goes into the social conditions in Indian society, the lack of sexual education. She says that the murder of Jyoti was what woke up the country of India and sparked an overdue conversation about rape. She said, quote, rich people rape. It knows no class. It knows no geographic boundaries. It is based on patriarchy, power, misogyny, how we bring up our kids, and it's the lack of equality. That's something we need to talk about. India has opened hundreds of Nirbhaya centers for women all across the country, rape crisis centers named for the fearless Jyoti Singh. These centers will provide services to women who are survivors of rape, sexual assault, and domestic violence, and will render medical aid and support legal assistance, and other resources. Thanks for sticking with me through this very difficult episode. It's nearly impossible to understand how human beings can do this to other human beings. As Giotti's dad put it, to call them human is to give humanity a bad name. If we call them monsters, even monsters have some limits. These are totally the devil. Giotti's mom now works with others who are survivors of misogynistic violence. 
she and her husband continue to talk about how proud they are of their daughter, Dr. Jyoti Singh. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is edited by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.